Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, a couple of years ago, a poll asked a number of Canadians how they hoped to fund their retirement. Some people were counting on the Canada Pension Plan to help them through their retirement years. Many people plan to use personal savings and things like RRSPs. Amazingly, one-third of respondents said they hope to fund their retirement by winning, winning the lottery. With odds of winning at about 1 in 14 million, that's going to make for a lot of unhappy Canadians. Now, we might laugh at that, but it's actually really sad when you think about it. What a silly thing to put your hope in. It's simply delusional thinking. But you know what? That also begs the question for us. In what do we place our hope? And that can go for our retirement years, can go for our day-to-day lives. It touches on so many things. <clears throat> In what is our hope and trust that we will receive what we need to live? Of course, we might know what the answer should be. Of course, the answer should be our hope must be in God. You know, we, we know that in our minds, but the question is, do my actions show that my hope is actually in the Lord? Or do my actions show that my hope is actually in something else, in created things or, or people? I say this because our actions will reveal what we truly believe. Do we hope in God at the end of the day, or do we hope in created things? And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we hear God's word from Jeremiah. So that brings us to the sermon theme. Set your hope on God to give you what you need for all of life. I know in the liturgy there's no points listed, but I have two points. First of all, the consequences of forsaking God, and secondly, the confidence we have in God. So first of all, the consequences of forsaking God. Now, the people of Israel had big problems. You see something of that in, the, in this prophecy from Jeremiah 14. And it begins with the description of a severe drought upon the land. No rain fell. No vegetation grew. There was barely any water to drink, hardly any food to eat. And so both people and animals suffered greatly. Not only that, but Israel was being defeated by various enemies. Four times this passage speaks of God's people being attacked by the sword. And these attacks are confirmed by other parts of Scripture. Jeremiah prophesied in and around the time of the Babylonian exile. Babylon had come and devastated much of Judah, taking captive so many people. Now, all of these things were terrible. No food or water, being attacked by your enemies. There was actually something far worse than this. The worst problem of all for Judah and Israel was the problem of idolatry. Israel so often fell in love with idols and served them instead of God. And this was also the source of all their other problems. 
That's what we have in this chapter of Jeremiah. In verse 22, Jeremiah confesses, Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? And this is what Israel was relying on, the false gods of the nations. And literally, Jeremiah calls these idols the vanities of the nations, or the worthless things of the nations. It's the same word used in the book of Ecclesiastes, that refrain we, we hear so often in that book, translated as vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless, or even useless, useless. See, the word used in Ecclesiastes and used to describe the idols of the nations has a sense of something that is worthless, futile, a mere mist or breath that has no substance. And that's the perfect description of idols. They are worthless, futile, empty. And of course, idolatry was not only Israel's problem. All the nations around Israel worshipped idols. These were the very idols Israel was worshipping. And this has been humanity's greatest problem ever since the fall into sin. That's because when humans rebelled in Adam, they filled their hearts with spiritual darkness. And one way that darkness is expressed is when humans, out of the evil desires of their heart, pursue idols and serve them. Because that is true, it should not surprise us that we too are prone to idolatry. All of us are tempted to put our hope in vain and worthless things. All of us are prone to serve created things rather than the Creator. And all of us are inclined to love people and things more than we love God. You know, the church father Augustine once explained why the wickedness of humans does not express itself to its maximum potential, even though humans are completely depraved from birth. Or to put it another way, we might ask, well, if humans are totally depraved, why aren't all people murdering and robbing banks and embracing every kind of sin imaginable? Well, Augustine pointed out that this is the case because usually there is one sin or idol that captivates a person more than any other. And isn't that so true? Often there is one particular sin in our hearts that we are really drawn towards. Often there is one particular idol that we are prone to serve. But even if we don't serve one particular sin or idol... Notice how a more subtle form of idolatry is further revealed in our text. First, in our text, Jeremiah asks, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Right? Blatant idolatry. But notice what he adds right after those words. Or can the heavens give showers? That is to say, 
Do the skies have the ability in themselves to send rain on the earth? And in response to that question, we might be inclined to say yes. Yes, the the skies have the ability to send rain. And why might we respond that way? It's because we can explain the activity of rain scientifically. That when such and such conditions come about, rain falls to the earth. We know that. In fact, we can explain things so well that we can accurately predict the weather. And these things can cause us to fail to see the hand of God at work in creation. And this can happen with more things in life. Does the ground have the ability to produce food? We might respond with a yes. Does the power and ability to do work come from my body? We might say, sure it does. Do my investments have the ability to give me wealth? Again, we might respond in the affirmative. Now, I know when we say those things, we are, we are often just describing the appearance of things. We're not talking about what happens ultimately, that the power to send rain on the earth is in the skies themselves. I know, and that may be. However, it's so easy to slip into a mode of thinking where God is taken out of the picture. Or we think everything just happens automatically. Or we believe the ground just grows food apart from the Lord. And where we believe that we ourselves are the source of our strength to go out and do our work and to gain an income. We can slip into this mode of thinking where the instrument God uses to provide is seen as the provider itself. You know, that's actually a subtle form of idolatry. It's a failure to acknowledge the power and goodness of God in creation. You see, attributing the power of God to the things of creation themselves robs God of His glory. It's a subtle confession that God is not in control and it denies His providence. This is one of the dangers we might be particularly prone to fall into. See, we are... We are so used to things just happening in creation. And so it's easy to overlook God's hand and power in it all. And because of that, we might then also fail to seek God's blessing for all those things. And this sort of belief or attitude can reveal itself in a prayerless life. After all, if things like rain falling on the ground, food growing out of the ground, and getting out of bed to go to work just happens apart from God, why would we bother ask God to give us those things in the first place? We are all prone to falling into that type of thinking. What we need to see, however, is there are consequences for idolatry. Now, the first consequence for idolatry is that we end up getting what we serve. Let me explain. I'm sure you've heard the saying, you are what you eat. 
That is, the food you put into your body is going to have a direct impact on the health of your body, how your body looks and functions. Well, we should add to that a similar saying, you are what you worship. If you trust in vain things, you will end up with vain results. You trust in worthless things, you will end up with worthless results. Now think of this in terms of this text from Jeremiah. Jeremiah asks, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? The answer is obviously no. And yet what did Israel do? So often they went after these idols and served them. The idols appealed to the evil desires of their heart, and so they embraced them and those desires. And one of the consequences is that they started serving a God that could not provide. And so that's what they got in the end. They ended up with nothing, no rain and no food. Remember, there are consequences uh, to serving idols. Relying on vain things in your everyday work will be in vain. Trust in worthless things, and in the end, you will get worthless results. You see, as a just God, God's punishment always fits the sin. You can see an example of that in this chapter. False prophets lied to the people and said, No, don't worry, sword and famine won't come upon the land. Even if you keep on going in your sinful ways, it will be okay. And the people embrace that message. And so the Lord declared to those prophets, if that's what these false prophets declare, then by the sword and famine, these prophets shall be consumed. Right? That the punishment fit the sin. The people of Judah experienced the same thing. They turned to idols who couldn't bring rain, and so they didn't get rain either. And that's what happens when people forsake the Lord. See, God is the source of every physical blessing that we have, every uh, physical gift that you enjoy in this life. It comes from the Lord. And so forsaking Him also means eventually forfeiting every physical blessing. That's also why hell is so terrible. See, every good thing in life has God as its source, and so forsaking God means at the same time losing every good thing. Now, it is true that in this life, God still continues to send rain on uh, the wicked and, and the just without um, distinction. The Lord Jesus states that exact thing in the New Testament. However, the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance, to turn to the Lord, the one who gives us all things, to put our hope in Him. It's meant to lead us to repentance. And not only that, but God can easily take those gifts away and has every right to. The reality is that when this life is over, He will take all good things away from those who refuse to turn to Him in repentance and faith. That brings us to our second point. 
That is, the confidence we have in God. So God's goodness is meant to lead us to repentance. And in this chapter from Jeremiah, we do see beautiful expressions of repentance. There's a a couple sections here that just comes out so wonderfully. The first instance is found in verses 7 to 9. These words are so beautiful, I'm going to quote the entire thing. Here we read, Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you, hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. A wonderful prayer to God of confession and reliance. And then we see a second section right before our text in verses 19 to 21. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came, for a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Again, beautiful words of of worship, and calling upon the Lord in heartfelt repentance. Show us, in fact, what true repentance looks like. It's a calling upon the Lord from the heart in confession of our sins in order to turn back to God and find forgiveness. Now, given that's the case question might arise in our minds. You know, if this is what repentance is supposed to look like, why does the Lord respond in the way that He does? He obviously doesn't respond favorably. Take only verse 10, right after the first section of repentance, where God says, "'Thus says the Lord concerning this people, they have loved to wander thus, they have not restrained their feet.'" Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. So we might wonder, why why does God respond in this way after those beautiful words? Well, the answer is this. It's not Israel or Judah itself which speaks these words of repentance. We have no evidence that they themselves turned to God with a contrite heart at the time of the exile. On the contrary, the history of Israel in this time shows they continued on in sin. After all, this chapter shows that people were listening to false prophets. Well, then where do these words come? From whom? Who speaks them? In all likelihood, these words are spoken by Jeremiah himself. He prays to the Lord in humility, trying to intercede on behalf of a wayward people, And that's why he prays in the third person, plural, using we instead of I. He's trying to intercede for Judah. The prophet Daniel does a similar thing in Daniel chapter 9. In that chapter, Daniel prayed to God 
by himself, but on behalf of the people of Israel. And he said, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So, in all likelihood, this is Jeremiah speaking these words. In any case, because it's not the people of Judah themselves who repent, God does not answer. What should we take away from that? Well, it highlights the need to repent from sin as individual Christians. God calls each of us to personal repentance. See, no one can repent for you. Right? No one can do this for you. We must all, as individual believers, come to God in repentance and faith. So also take care. Don't deaden your conscience against sin by ignoring the simple things you do or shrugging them off. Right? It's all too easy to speak of sin in mere general terms and confess sin to God as only a mere concept. Well, what does the Lord want? God wants us to acknowledge the specific sins we commit. Bring those to Him in confession. He wants us to repent from the heart, coming to Him for forgiveness and cleansing. And then making it our aim to put those sins to death. And these sections of repentance from Jeremiah 14 show us the way. And when we do confess from the heart, we have God's sure promise of His gracious forgiveness. 1 John 1 verse 9 states that promise like this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, God did not respond favorably to Judah because they didn't display any repentance at all. But if we do confess our sins from the heart, we can be sure, absolutely sure, God will indeed forgive us, not holding anything back. And that's because we turn to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Christ Jesus has secured the forgiveness of all of our sins through the payment of His blood. It's that blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us on the cross that pays for every single sin we have committed. It's that blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And having our debts paid for by Christ, we also aim to live how God wants us to live. And that includes following the last words of our text. Listen to the words of of Jeremiah here. Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you. For you, you do all these things. Here Jeremiah acknowledges that Yahweh is their God. The idols of the nations profit for nothing. They cannot help. They cannot save. God is the one who gives rain. Yahweh is the source of all prosperity. Yahweh is the one who gives life and health and everything else. And because all these things are true, he, he prays to the Lord, we set our hope on you. That's what God wants from us. 
to set our hope on God for all things in life, to rely on Him, to trust in Him, to seek all good things from His hand. And one important way we can do that is through prayer, indeed. Right? Prayer is perhaps the greatest expression of, of setting our hope on the Lord. Because the act of prayer in itself acknowledges that God is the source of, of every physical gift. So that's why we pray for these things, a blessing on, say, the crops and, and all of our work. Not only this day, but we pray for these things every day. One of the great ways to pray with the attitude of our text is found in Lord's Day 50 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Lord's Day 50, one of our confessions, teaches us to pray for our daily bread like this. Lord God, provide us with all our bodily needs so that we may acknowledge that you are the only fountain of all good and that our care and labor and also your gifts cannot do us any good without your blessing. Grant, therefore, that we may withdraw our trust from all creatures and place it only in you. Remembering to depend on God through prayer every day requires a certain measure of, of discipline on our part. It may require turning off the phone or the computer in order to spend some time in, in prayer. It may mean denying yourself some things you want to do in order to call upon God. And when the Lord does provide, let's also remember to thank Him. You know, these two things, acknowledging God as the source of every blessing and thanking God for His gifts, encompass so much of what God wants from His people. In Romans 1, the Holy Spirit through Paul condemns the sins of the Gentiles. The first thing he charges them with is this, although they knew God from creation, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They put their hope false gods who can't provide rain or anything. Or else they think the sky itself is the ultimate source of rain, even though they feel compelled to use terms like Mother Nature. So this is why we do this every year, set aside time to seek God in prayer, asking Him to bless the crops and all of our work. We're aiming to honor Him as God. We're doing what Jeremiah did so many hundreds of years ago, displayed in our text, acknowledging that the Lord is our God. He does all these things. And so we set our hope on Him. And as we put our hope in God, we trust that the Lord will also provide. We expect that He will give us what we need. This doesn't mean that faithful Christians will never experience times of hunger or scarcity. Just think of the prophet Jeremiah himself. Uh, he was faithful to God, but he also had to go through this harsh drought on the land as well. And Romans 8 likewise lists famine as one of the hardships Christians might go through. And yet going through those things does not separate us from God's love in Christ. And remember, God has promised to provide. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, we hear that promise stated like this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
With that promise from God, we set our hope in Him. We work for His glory in all that we do, expecting all good things from His power alone. Amen. Let's now respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing hymn 65, stanzas 1 and 2.